Okay, listen up. If you are growing a team, today's episode is right up your alley. And I don't care if you're a solo advisor, just adding support staff, if you're a two-person advisory team wanting to expand to just four advisors, or if you're like my guest today, wanting to grow to a 400 advisor-wide firm, this episode is still full of amazing nuggets for any advisor in any team structure. In today's episode, my guest, Jeremy Stobb, touches on systems and processes, shocker, (laughs) culture, and intentionality. And he lays out for us exactly what it takes to grow your team and how to step into that CEO role and really start thinking about your business more strategically and more systematically. And if you listen to the show, you know that that is my absolute jam. I love when an advisor hits that inflection point and really steps into that role. Everything changes. I truly believe that's when you really create the shift into building a business that you love and that serves you, your family, and your desired lifestyle while not sacrificing really, really high quality planning for your clients. And before we dive into this episode, group coaching, signups are almost ready to go live. So make sure you are on the wait list as those will be the first folks notified and given first stab at the limited number of spots available. Our start date will be August 24th and we'll be meeting on Thursdays. So get excited. It is going to be an amazing program. We have been testing and tweaking the curriculum and I am just so, so excited to launch this. So if that is of interest to you, make sure you are on the wait list. I will have the link for that in the show notes and you can find the link out on the website. All right, let's dive in. Look, I know you're here because you know it's possible to have energy left over for your family and still have your dream business. And you know the business I'm talking about, the one that you are running instead of it running you. If you're new to The Efficient Advisor, I'm Libby Grywe. I started, built, and sold by age 37, a 100% referral-only planning practice that I grew to seven figures as a solo advisor all while working just three days a week and taking off 14 weeks a year to lean into being a mom, a wife, a sister, a friend, a daughter, and frankly, a travel-obsessed human who loved to take vacations. I'm here just to walk alongside you and to show you how to do exactly the same and really just to help you take immediate action on the most important strategies for scaling, organizing, and creating less stress and overwhelm in your business. We are about to transform your practice. So even if you have advisor ADD, it is still time to take that one right next step to build a business and a life that you love. So let's get into this interview with Jeremy. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, running multiple businesses to to just share with our audience kind of how you started, grew, and really kind of super scaled Coastal Wealth. So thanks so much for being here. Libby, I'm excited to be here. I've been a fan of uh, your podcast for a while and uh, what you do for financial advisors. So thank you. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, kind of share with us your journey of how you got into the industry, how you started, and then 
what was kind of the impetus for your growth? Like what, what made you want to build, I don't even know what you would, what do you call it? A mega practice, uh, a mega firm, uh, a 400 advisor wide firm is a pretty big, aggressive uh, goal. So where did all of that come from? So I've been in the industry for 24 years, um, started at uh, American Express Financial Advisors, uh, becoming a financial planner right off the bat. Um, I, I joined that because my my father gave me advice that I should take a sales job out of college and learn um, from a Fortune 50 company. So American Express is Fortune 50. They had a good sales <laughs> training program to become a financial advisor, and, and that's what I became. Um, quickly, I moved through the ranks with them, moving from Philly to Boston to South Florida to California. Um, moving up the managerial side, ultimately to be running their Southwest uh, for their employee channel. So California, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico uh, was running for the uh, Ameriprise. Um, that was about a 15-year journey in doing uh, that. And I really enjoyed uh, the financial planning career, but I loved leadership a lot more. For me, being able to um, have bigger reach with the advisors, it gave me more of um I got more excited for it, right? So doing helping a client reach a financial plan got me, you know, I felt good when, you know, I walked, I came into somebody's house and the kids knew me as the guy that sent them to college. There was like a piece <laughs> that like, made me feel real good about that. Um, but when I was able to help an advisor learn how to be able to bring on a client, bring a client that was more exciting for me. And that kind of gave me a bigger rush. And that's kind of launched me into my leadership path. And then as I moved up the executive ranks, um, I found that I didn't enjoy um, being an executive in a Fortune 500 company, uh, and I really wanted to start my own business. And so that got me to start Coastal Wealth, and that was a, a journey trying to figure out and navigate how do you build a, a wealth management firm in this industry, which has a lot of different options, a lot of different funding sources, and a lot of different ways to figure it out. And uh, so that, that's... That leaded me into the uh, the entrepreneurial side. I'm happy to share kind of that path and how I chose and, and did it. If you want yeah, to. yeah, no, absolutely. Because there's so many different ways that you can. One of the things that keeps me super interested in this industry is that there's 5,000 different ways to build an extremely successful practice. And there's more acronyms than we can even, you know, start to, to weed through with IAR and RIA and a hybrid. Are you with a broker dealer? Like, so how, when you were kind of filtering through that, talk, talk to us about your process and then how you ultimately landed where you are. So I looked at a couple of different options. And um, so I looked at buying RIAs. I looked at starting my own. I looked at looking at shell broker dealers that you can get, you know, 50, 100 grand for a shell broker dealer and be able to build that on my own and raise money. Uh, I looked at there's broker dealers that were small that had 70 or 100 advisors that were looking for a CEO, but I can get maybe five, 10% equity and in, in being able to run the company. Um, ultimately, I found insurance companies had an, interest, an interesting model, which I didn't know about coming from the wealth management side. Um, but they will actually let you borrow money, like running like a private equity. They will let you borrow money to be able to buy smaller firms or take over one of the smaller firm that might be affiliated with them and then give you some of the resources to be able to scale that quickly in return for being able to use their broker dealer, being able to use their technology stack and being able to um, distribute some of their products. And so that's what I ended up doing. I ended up uh, partnering up with a, a large insurance company. Let me borrow money to be able to acquire a bunch of the firms. And it allowed me to be able to scale a lot faster. What I was coming from was, 
you know, running a large organization, being executive of the Meriprise, it, I, I struggled with the idea of starting from scratch or starting with three or five or 10 advisors that I was okay borrowing a bunch of money, making less money to be able to have a much bigger organization to be able to scale from. Okay, perfect. So you landed at Mass Mutual. Was that where you, I mean, is that where you started when you started Coastal? Yes. Yeah. Mass Mutual. So basically they allowed me to start doing that. And then I was able to quickly scale and grow in that business. And then I was able to acquire a couple other firms, but I've always been one of, you know, one of the things, if I look at my career and why I was able to move up quickly through Ameriprise and then also been able to grow this is I've just always been really good at attracting talent. So, you know, and if I look in the Ameriprise system or the mass mutual system and compare to the other firms associated with them, I've always been number one recruiter, number one or two recruiter on it. It's just been one of those, um, skill sets of mine and building out process and systems to be able to attract talent in a way to be able to scale the firms faster than most of my peers. Okay. I love that. So anytime someone uses the word process or the word system, I get chills down my spine. I get very excited about stuff like that. So how did you come across like a system? So I know there's a lot of advisors listening and I, and we do have a fair amount of leadership that listens as well. Um, when you are looking at attracting talent to your, you know, cause we, I don't know, a lot of advisors, it's, it, you know, we can be a commodity, right? Like we all kind of look alike. There's a lot of different places to work that are really great, enjoyable atmospheres that have good culture, that have great products, that have great training. How do you differentiate coastal or as you were building out these systems and processes to attract talent, how did you differentiate or what was that kind of process like that made it? so successful for you? So I think there's two parts you think about. One is you think about your value prop. You know, what is it that you're actually going to provide advisors that come into your firm that's going to make them want to be attracted to your firm, but also retain them and make them grow. So it's not this this, um, bait and switch type deal. So, you know, you really have to build out a value prop that's satisfying what the market is asking for and where there's opportunities inside the market. So I'll be happy to talk about that. But then the second part is you could have a really good value prop. If you don't have a really good attraction tool to bring in the talent, be able to, to um, source it and be able to bring that talent in a way that they feel comfortable either leaving their existing firm or leaving their existing career to be able to work with you. That's a whole other piece than the value prop. I've met really good firms that have a really good value prop, but they're unable to attract talent at a, at a, a scalable rate to make them grow. Um, so if we kind of just bifurcate those two parts out, if we say the value prop. So for myself, I, I, and this might be counterintuitive to the industry, I don't, I don't like the sales manager traditional role, right? So I got rid of all our sales managers and the idea of having sales managers. No offense to sales managers on the phone at all, but I, I think it's, it's really hard to be a jack of all trades. And I think once somebody's in the business three, four, five years, the sales manager either focuses on all the newbies. Or the advisor has outgrown the sales manager's skill sets to be able to learn from them. So what I what I did was I reinvested the dollars that I would put in the sales manager program into support mechanisms to help advisors. And I'll just walk you through a few of them, right? One of the things I know advisors struggle with is getting new clients. I always joke, if I can help you get new clients, you'll forgive me for everything else. Like I can literally stop <laughs> everything else, but if I'm getting you new clients, you'll forgive me for a lot of stuff. So, you know, right now, about 22% of the clients that my firm brings on are from uh, marketing strategies that we have put in place. The goal is about a third of your clients should come from support mechanisms that we have in place. 
The second part I invested money in is around helping you be able to get in other. So there's a problem in the industry around how you're going to continue to grow and make money. We have a mature industry where our margins are getting squeezed all the time. What you got paid on an annuity, a mutual fund, a stock trade, your wrap account, whatever it is, years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, five years ago, is probably less than it is, um, or it is less now than it was then. So you have this constant margin compression. And so if you're going to make less and less as the years go on for selling the same stuff, how do you make more money? Well, you make more money either by getting more clients, which we already talked about. You make more money by being able to move up market, sell bigger ticket items, or you have to sell more products per household. Mm -hmm. We know the average financial plan sells five to seven products for household. But one of the things I found is most advisors don't know how to sell all the different types of products that meet their clients' needs. I wasn't an insurance guy. I didn't understand that. But, you know, I know you doing a full-blown financial plan, you find opportunity insurance side. For myself, though, when I brought in a wirehouse guy, a guy from Merrill, a guy from Morgan, they wanted nothing to do with insurance. They didn't want to split ticket with somebody or bring in another advisor down the office because they were afraid they would screw up the relationship with the with the client what i decided to do is take that sales manager money and just hire a bunch of experts that are on staff for me to be able to help them be able to build out their businesses in other different products whether it's okay you've never done 401k you've never done annuities maybe you've never done property casualty and you want to open up your own property casualty agency maybe you have business owners that have never done group benefits with and you want to do group benefits with i've just hired experts on staff that'll help you at point of sale and help you work with the clients they're part of your team, but you don't have to pay them because instead of paying the sales managers, I'm paying these guys and girls. Um, so that was another part of the value prop that we did. And then the last part I would say that we did was you hit a certain level of complexity when you're about six to 800,000 in GDC. If you're at that level of production, you start moving from a salesperson to running a business. That's a really hard transition. You guys probably have all read the e-myth and you understand the idea of it. And it's just, it's a harder path to be able to do it. So what I built inside our firm is a consulting company, like a McKinsey-ish, a lot less, but a McKinsey-ish inside the firm. That basically (laughs) we do a business valuation on your practice. We say, here's what your business is worth. Here's 27 different levers that you can be able to pull to increase the value of your business and help you move from a salesperson to a business owner. And then we help coach them in building those processes, meaning, okay, what's staff roles and responsibilities? How do you do one-on-ones? How do you be able to set up bonuses? How do you be able to set up uh, your taxes as now you're running a business? How do you be able to do that? How do you add on a junior advisor? What's the comp plans associated with it? What's your training and development plans for it? So we're basically helping this business owner or person moving to a business owner learn all those skill sets besides navigating on their own. Okay, separate that. That's the value prop. How you actually source them is a whole other thing. I'm happy to jump into too on where you find talent, but that value prop is what attracted people to us because it was different than in the marketplace. It satisfied issues in the marketplace. Margin compression was an issue. Sure. Trying to move to a, being a business owner from a salesperson and learning how to scale was an issue and acquiring clients was an issue. And so those were three problems I tried to make sure we solved for the marketplace to attract people over Okay. So interesting. So I see a lot of advisors, you know, wanting all of the independence and the, um, you know, really the, the nimbleness that comes with being an RIA, less compliance, you know, more just autonomy. How do you, 
how do you speak to that? And like, what, what, what it, along with that, right. You're when you're on your own, you're literally on your own and you're kind of left to figure out all of these things. How do we, in an environment where I feel like there's this, I don't know, there's this like weird tension that's happening right now, kind of between RIAs and between broker dealers and, and one being better or worse or whatever, how do you attract those? Or how do you speak to those advisors who want the the ability to pivot and they want that nimbleness. They want some of that autonomy and they really do want some of that support structure. Is that basically what you're creating at Coastal that advisors could replicate within their own businesses? Yeah. So think about the trend in the last 15, 20 years is the breakaway advisor, right? The advisors leaving the wirehouses or the captive insurance companies and going independent. What we've found, and you guys can go pull up the studies to be able to do it, usually when somebody goes independent, they start to level off. So they have this growth path and a supported structure. They go independent, and all of a sudden, 20 or 30% of their time is spent running the business. And that, But they make more money because their payouts are higher. So now they get this bump in income. They feel wealthier, but their time is not spent on growing as much because it's running the business and dealing with the business owner stuff. So the idea of what we tried to build was a hybrid independent model where you can still DBA as you want to. You can still be able to go use outside vendors and be able to do that if you want to. You just plug and play in Coastal. I almost think of it as like a power strip. You kind of plug and play where you want to. Let's say you want to be RIA and you want to be on your own and you want to just do your investments there. And you're like, hey, help me with the financial planning, the protection side, the group benefits, property casualty, all the life insurance. Help me with that stuff. I don't I'm going to just have my own RIA. You can still affiliate with us that if that, that's the way you want to do it. If you want to be able to be on our broker dealer platform and do that, you could do that also. So there's just multiple ways to affiliate with us. I think of it as a, you know, you can join our ecosystem in a couple different ways. Uh, the idea though is really to be this hybrid independent model where you don't have to be completely out on your own. You can kind of come back a little bit into a supported structure mm-hmm. while still maintaining the independent payouts. And still maintaining your independence in a sense of maybe your DBA and your office space and how you're running, but you're doing it in a supported structure that you're not doing it by yourself alone. You're delegating out some of that responsibility to a to a, an outside vendor. Okay, I love that. So there's a lot of advisors who listen to the show that are solo, maybe one to four, a smaller group that are wanting to expand, what would be some of the best advice that you would have for someone who maybe has two, three advisors within their business that's wanting to scale to 10 or wanting to scale to 20? What were some of the foundational pieces that you guys had to lay down in order to be able to um, still continue a life by design and not default and not be just overwhelmed by all of the things that come with trying to scale and grow a business? So I think you got to decide on why you want to grow, right? And and it, are, are you growing because you feel more bodies in place gives you um, a bigger company to be able to run? Like, and you want to think of how the advisors come through. So if you're going to hire five to 10 advisors, hiring five to 10 existing advisors that you have to give very high payouts to, you would have to have, go my model, right? You'd have to have this other value prop and have to do it at scale to make it worth it. If you have a a model where you're driving in clients on your own and you really just want to have people to help you serve your lower end clients and clients coming in, then your model might be different. You might have an employee based advisor model, a staff bonus model or something like that. What I know, if you're sitting in the RIA space, you're going to get a much higher multiple 
if you're not running independent advisors underneath you with high payouts, you're running an employee-based system where you're managing your margins a lot better. So your EBITDA is going to be higher to be able to have a bigger sale. So if I'm sitting in a two, three, four-person um, firm and I'm trying to figure out how to get bigger, in my mind, I got to solve a couple of the issues is I have to have my service model super tight before I decide to scale. I have to have a client acquisition model somehow in place to be able to acquire clients to do it. Because if I bring in somebody to acquire clients, they're going to want all the payout. So if, I, if I'm if i bringing in somebody to make rain, unless it's like a retiring executive that doesn't want to financially plan, it's just going to bring people in. I'm for the most part going to have to figure out my own client acquisition strategy. And so then I'm bringing in other advisors that are servicing my business model, my book that I built. That's how I would be scaling if you really want to be able to to grow to a bigger advisor firm. Unless you're going to build a big platform. If you're going to build a big platform like me, you're going to need a much bigger advisor force to make money because the margins are so much thinner. It'd be hard to do it in 8, 10, 12 advisors. The School of Podcasting with Dave Jackson. Are you looking to start your own podcast but don't know where to begin? Look no further than the schoolofpodcasting.com. Our comprehensive online courses and one-on-one coaching will teach you everything you need to know from equipment and editing to marketing and monetization. At the schoolofpodcasting.com, you'll be creating high-quality, engaging content in no time. Say goodbye to frustration and uncertainty. And hello to the community at the school of podcasting.com. Okay, I love that. And what would be so something it seems like you have done an exceptional job at is building a culture that advisors thrive in, that people want to be a part of. It feels like, and maybe this is just outside looking in that you guys have been really intentional about creating an environment that's, that's fun, that's um, rooted in values that advisors want to be a part of that's bigger than just the products, the services, the support that you offer. Can you share a little bit about kind of how you guys have laid that foundation and how you kind of sort of self-discovered what your value prop is beyond the business side? So if you go back and think about how most of us started in a career, like our most fun time in the career, a lot of times take out the cold calling or take out the stuff we did to go prospect in the beginning. But it was the camaraderie and the time we spent with uh, our peers in building the business early on. That was like a fun part of the time. And then you think of conferences where you're hanging out at conferences and that that's your fun part to be able to do it. The retention of employees, there's a, there was a study read that one of the main reasons employees say is because they have a friend at work, right? They feel like they have a close relationship <laughs> at work, which I thought was an interesting study because I thought it'd be like comp or something else. Right. So one of the things we did, especially, um, right, we merged three firms together um, a few years ago, and it was right in the beginning of COVID going through. We had to figure out a way over a large geography to keep people connected. And so we were very intentional in the nonprofit work we did and how we connected um, the firm and doing that from beach cleanups to, you know, feeding the homeless together um, to different charity work together that, you know, it was one of those ones where I worried because advisors are, you know, so focused on themselves where they want to, and they love these activities and we're very excited to be part of it. And then we, we did monthly events that were held by different apartments. 
And they were stuff that I just didn't expect people to be into, right? Like there was a Fortnite uh, tournament. I didn't even know what Fortnite is, right? <laughs> our, tech, our tech department ran. But we had all these advisors, kids that played in it. And it created this whole bond between advisors that I didn't even expect doing something random like that. So we basically have a monthly theme that, theme that we did. And we've done it for the last two or three years. We got to figure out. It's starting to get stale, to be honest. But it was, it was one of those ones that got people connected. And it was um, really brought up from the bottom up of different ideas that the different departments had to be able to do it. So the charity work was a big piece to it. It was making sure that, you know, we had fun events that fit all different types, not just a golf event for, you know, that's all we wanted to do or a boat right. in Florida. You know, we, we tried to really make it where it might not be something I might think of, but there are all these other constituents inside the firm that people would be interested in. So we're really thoughtful on that. And then the, the last part is, you know, for our team and um, for the employees and the advisors, we really take their feedback and we've built up a number of different committees from a culture committee to a diversity committee. And I know that sounds very corporate-ish, um, but it was one of those ones where people feel like they have a voice in setting the tone of what the company is going to look like. And because they have that voice, most of our best ideas and how we've really driven the culture is through that. And so the one thing I say about culture all the time is you are the culture. So if there's an advisor that's saying, ah, oh, my team's upset about this, this, and this, I go, well, you're most of the interaction with the team. So if the team is not happy and you're saying your team's not happy inside there, it's probably because of 90% of their interaction with you. So you got to figure out why you're not making the culture seem there. And you and I have to spend some time together figuring out where you're frustrated and disappointed because you're the one that's really driving the culture in that smaller group. And that's something we talk about all the time with the different leaders of the different uh, departments and our different team leads for our major practices. Okay. I love that. So I kind of want to just like press pause and kind of just break that down a little bit for people listening to make sure that they, they captured this idea. And it sounds like I mean, being, you know, rated one of the best places to work, you know, I, culture is obviously a really a thing that you guys are really thriving at. And it sounds like that you create opportunities for your employees, team, staff, whatever you want to call them to co-create that culture and to have some buy-in and leadership within that within that, but then also, of course, leading by example as, as, as the boss, is that a fair? Right. So we have, we have different committees, right? We have our, right. we actually have our culture committee, which yeah. really, really just sets the events, right? And they're really just talking about where the events are for the year coming up and how we make sure that even when we do like an offsite kickoff, we do an offsite meeting that there is pieces there that are attractive to building our culture inside those different meetings. So if I'm doing an offsite with uh, my top broker dealer advisors, or I'm doing an offsite with my top insurance advisors, the culture committee is going, hey, here's the meeting we're having. What do we need to do right now for the culture that's going to make these people feel engaged and, go, and um, involved? And they're giving a different lens than me as a CEO would right. give um, to be able to help us figure that out. So all of our events are getting run through them. And then they have our, our monthly fun events. They're in charge of which department and what those monthly fun, uh, fun events are. So yeah, that's definitely a piece to it. Oh, I love that. So for advisors that are building out teams virtually, do you have any ideas that have worked for you guys that, you know, kind of coming out of COVID or just having a business that has virtual, you know, people in other parts of the country that maybe aren't there in office or not necessarily being able to do offsite 
you know, live events with them with at, at any kind of high frequency. Have you guys done anything to try to create culture through Zoom events, or is that really kind of those department-led Fortnite kind of things? <laughs> the Fortnite was definitely one of them um, to do it. Fortnite, poker night, again, virtual, all virtual. We've done all that. We we kept with the kind of COVID themes of sending out the gift boxes in a certain way to do a wine tasting. And, and you know, fortunately, you know, South Florida has, you get everybody from every industry moves there. So somebody always kind of knows somebody. So then you end up, you know, finding the the winemaker of a wine in Napa, but he happens to have a place there that somebody is, you know, friends with that we can have speak real quickly on it. So um, what we've done is pulled in, um, different topics that we think are people interested in so the wine tasting we've done the bourbon tasting we've done um but it's i'm I'm repeating everybody that you've been on enough of that stuff during covid we just kept that on the virtual side and and our firm is pretty well spread out through the whole southeast that we've had to keep that the department heads a lot of times or a team lead will do you know a lunch together a cup of coffee together on their drink. Actually, they don't do a cup of coffee anymore. Most of the parts of their drinks at the end of the day. (laughs) They'll do a drink on a Friday virtually to do it. But um, the thing I found that we had to do a lot more is the idea of people flying in to go meet in the office isn't attractive to people. I really had to make the fly-ins when I'm getting everybody together in a more fun spot and something more interesting. And it's... um, the idea of even even when somebody wants to meet with me, they don't want to meet with me in the office. They want to meet with me somewhere else. So it's completely kind of changed on how I'm looking at office space. And so even when people are flying in, I'm like, oh, come meet me in the office. Like, how about we go to lunch? I'm like, hell am I paying all this money for an office space for? So the fly-ins I've had to get more creative with, right? So we go to different locations, even if it's just a, a one-day business meeting, I'm not doing it in my office anymore. Hey you, yeah, you listening. Do you like personal finance or real estate? Are you itching to build wealth and create a better life for yourself or your family? Then you need to come check out the Life, Money, and More podcast with real estate agent, YouTuber, and actor, Sage Weiss. This isn't your average finance show. We dive deep and do not sugarcoat topics around money and life. The Life, Money, and More podcast releases two episodes a week just for you because we're all about helping you win in this crazy world we live in. Come join the thousands of listeners on the Life, Money, and More podcast. Yeah. Okay. So we work at the efficient advisory, a big piece of who we work with are those advisors that are, you know, you mentioned it earlier towards the top of the episode. They're at that point where they're starting to realize like, oh, I actually have a business and I really need to kind of step from advisor into that CEO role and start to manage this thing uh, like a real business with systems, with processes, with, you know, defined structure. What are some of the, the biggest things that you see as a leader walking advisors through that? What are some of the biggest mindset shifts or, you know, actual tactical things that advisors who are moving into that space really need to be thinking about, or what are some of the biggest challenges that you see advisors having to overcome to really truly become a business owner? So the, the constant thing that, that I try to get in people's heads is 
you need to make the business to be able to run without you. Meaning, mm -hmm. how do you have it in your mindset that you don't need to meet any clients at some point? And that's a really hard shift because really the clients buy so much into the advisor and you're kind of, that's your, that's your way to be able to hold on to stuff that it can't just be commoditized and move away. So it, it's a long journey for somebody to make that. It's a, you know, it could be an eight, 10, 15 year journey to get to a point that you've developed talent underneath you, you have the right comp models underneath you, you have the right systems and processes underneath you to be able to make it where you don't have to be there um, and it could be run on its own. And so that mindset has to be there. The second, so the mindset of the idea that you should be at a certain point where you're no longer have to be there day to day. The second mindset is the idea that you want to have your business running well enough that if you make a couple strategic little shifts in your business, you can make a lot more money. So I'll give you an example if you're sitting there going, all right, I'm looking at my business. I have all, you know, 280 households that really do comprehensive planning with me, but I got 800, you know, true households in my, in my book that I, you know, don't service everybody that. How am I going to be, am I going to just give them to the call center at wherever I'm at? Am I just going to dump those people? Am I going to sell that smaller part of the book? Where else can you monetize that doesn't take you a lot of time? And so, for example, um, one of the things that a, a lot of advisors have been interested in, I didn't expect it when I first started Coastal, was around starting a property casualty agency, right? They have all these households, but they never sold auto, home, or anything like that to their clients or business liability, and they don't want to. Well, it, when it comes to the property casualty, it's a commodity type business. You don't need to sell anything like that. You can hire somebody that's not a very expensive staff role to service and do all that. All you have to do is pass the names over and you have a business that is scalable and sellable at the same multiples your RIA could be sold for. Mm -hmm. So why not? You already have the relationship. You're already a trusted advisor. You already have conversations with them. Why not build a separate business with it? You could staff out that doesn't take any of your time that you can be able to sell later. So it's starting to get this mind shift around. I can make a big strategic um, initiative around a way to be able to make money and build equity value along with cash flow. And I'm better off spending my thought leadership and my time there than I am determining what I should do to rebalance a portfolio on that part. Yes. And so getting them to start understanding that and starting to see these other levers they can pull to be able to build true value inside their business um, is one of the pieces that we work a lot with them on. And it's, again, it's a shift because you're you were so focused in on acquire clients, acquire clients, acquire clients, service model, service model, service model, that we're not really thinking of how can we drive real equity value inside our practice. I love it. Yes. Okay. That is, that is fantastic. Well, good. Well, I know you recently launched a podcast. Will you just share a little bit about kind of where that came from and, and what you guys talk about? Sure. So um, one of the executives of my team, Dr. Jason Heller, he has a doctorate in finance. He's an adjunct professor at American College, also runs a very big practice, but also um, runs a number of different departments uh, for my company. He is much smarter than me, and him and I launched a podcast <laughs> uh, around uh, how clients have biases on how they look at their finances, and those biases affect the decision-making they have. So it's a small 15, 20-minute episodes, um, really built for either the client or the advisor to understand what those biases are and be able to make better decisions with their money from it. And as we start thinking as ourselves as advisors, 
the business of asset management is coming much more of a commodity type business. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we know is managing our clients' behavior is just as important as managing the right financial strategy. And so starting to be able to articulate that in a better way to your clients just enhances the value you provide. And that's the, the what we're trying to give in the education in the podcast. I love that. Okay. So before we we wrap up, I always like to ask my guests that are entrepreneurial, that are business owners. And I know you own, you know, not just coastal, but multiple businesses. What are a couple of, whether they're tools that you'll use, whether it's routines or mindset hacks or, or whatever, what are a couple of things that have really helped you as a business owner to operate more efficiently, to operate kind of at your peak energy level, or really just to stay more organized and uh, kind of stay out of that overwhelm space that can often happen for especially serial entrepreneurs? And there's so much there that I could say. I'll show you a couple of random stuff. <laughs> I love um, random stuff. <laughs> random stuff. Um, one of the things I've been doing recently is, is these cold plunges. Somebody bought me a cold plunge and I've been doing that, but and it feels like I'm drinking caffeine. So I've been doing that twice a day instead of drinking caffeine. That's giving me energy to just keep going with it. That's a random thing. But, um, you know, I run on these 90 day sprints. Um, I found that the annual goals don't work well for me. There's a book written a uh, 12 week year that that's very yep. similar to this 90 day sprint idea. Um, so, uh, Running my goals in in those 90 day sprints have been um, really helpful for me in making sure that I'm I stay focused. I got three or four weeks. I'm all excited. Three or four weeks. I just don't do anything. And then all of a sudden I realize the 90 days almost over and I start cranking again. Um, So that's a big piece to it. And then the other part is I, I constantly think about my hourly rate and and what I'm doing. So if all of a sudden the tasks I'm doing, I'm like, okay, is this something that is the best use of my time? And so in the beginning of those 90 days, I write out what my week should look like and where I want to spend my time. And then by the end of those 90 days, I start realizing that my time's not spent close to where it should be in those areas. And it's gotten eaten up and other stuff that's not productive. And so it's this constant resetting of, okay, my key activities during the day of where I think I should be spending my time, I all of a sudden have veered from. Uh, or they've changed as I've built efficiencies or figured out how to delegate stuff out that it's not worth me doing anymore, or I hired somebody to do those tasks, that I got to go back and figure out what those key activities are again. So this constant process of looking at my hours during the day, and are they really spent in the right places for me to drive what's important to me, whether that's being a great dad, whether that's making sure I'm healthy and then worrying about my health, or whether that's driving any of the business initiatives. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you. And I I'm here for all the weird stuff, like the cold plunge or, you know, routines that people have. I find them just like absolutely fascinating. And I see the cold plunge thing everywhere. So is it, it's worth the hype, huh? I, you know what? I, I, I don't know I've read <laughs> the physical stuff associated with it, but the idea of just jump, doing something you don't want to do at least once a day for three to five minutes. And then you're so cold afterwards that I just, I feel like it's hard to be not awake at that point. So it's worked for me, even if it's mental, it literally is a replaced caffeine for me in the afternoon and in the morning it's me a jolt. So yeah, it's been good for me for what it's worth. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know there will be advisors listening who will take away a ton of nuggets from all of the things that you shared. And I'm just really grateful that you, that you carved that out for us. And thanks so much for being here. Awesome. This is awesome. Appreciate the conversation.
Okay, so I will make sure to link Jeremy's podcast in the show notes along with the several books that we mentioned during this episode. So as you know, I like to take some of the key points or some of the big takeaways from the interview and just kind of distill those down here at the very end. So a couple of the things that I heard were having a value proposition that attracts a team and having some sort of attraction tool. So I thought that was a really interesting concept in our group coaching program and in our one-on-one coaching. We talk a lot about having a really firm why story, a really firm value prop, something that gives team members or potential employees, something they can really sink their teeth into. And everybody has a natural desire to be part of something bigger. So getting really clear on what your value proposition is as a business owner to employees, I think is really an interesting thought in addition to having a really strong value proposition to attract clients. The other thing I thought that was really an interesting thing that Jeremy mentioned was eliminating some of the sales manager roles and really just hiring experts to be on staff as part of that value proposition. So how can you position yourself as an attractive employer? How can you build out resources and look for really just areas of opportunity? Is every penny that you're spending the most effective possible? And what are some of the redundancies or what are some of these ideas? And I couldn't agree more that At a certain point, advisors do tend to, in a traditional broker-dealer relationship, you know, do tend to start to exceed the expertise level of their sales managers. So I love this idea that Jeremy had about having just redeploying those dollars and having more experts on staff to support advisors. The other thing I heard was this idea of at some point having a mind shift from advisor to CEO. And if you listen to the show, you know that's my thing. I love talking about this. Jeremy said kind of at that $600,000 to $800,000 revenue, I think personally, I think there's an inflection point that happens before that a little bit earlier on. Um, As your business starts to scale, you get to a place where you're like, okay, I love what I've built. It's exciting. I'm making money. I'm not going to starve to death. I'm going to be able to pay the mortgage, but holy smokes, I'm overwhelmed. And I feel like I need to back up a few steps and really start to establish some systems and processes so that I can scale this thing without making myself completely crazy and without being tethered to my phone all weekend and checking email during my kids' soccer games. There's nothing I... I don't want to say hate, that's a strong word, but what makes me crazy, and I have lots and lots of advisor clients and advisor friends that I hear say this, and it's this idea of like, oh, okay, I've just got to get through these next couple of weeks and then things will slow down. Or man, I just were, you know, I just got to get through this and I just got to get it all done and I can figure it out. And we have to hit a point where we realize, like, okay. I can't do it all. I'm going to need to create some systems and processes in my business to streamline this so I can delegate it. I need to automate some things and we have to actually slow down in order to speed up and scale. So this idea of having a shift from advisor to CEO, I think is really, really important. So something else that Jeremy and I talked about off camera or off mic that I thought was really interesting. So Jeremy didn't mention this in the episode, but it's something he talks about a lot is he went through um, stage four cancer and a pretty involved divorce. And something that he said to me that I thought was really impactful is that having gone through these two pretty traumatic, you know, life altering experiences, 
gave him some perspective that there is a difference between an inconvenience versus a problem. Like just what a perspective shift to talk about like, okay, is this actually a problem or is this just an inconvenience? And then how do I approach those things very differently and really having some personal practices to help you maintain your energy, maintain your focus. Um, you know, gosh, there's lots of different things that, that he and I've chatted about over time of ways to just get your rocks in place. And if you know what I'm talking about, if you know, you know, um, but getting your rocks in place and determining what's really important and using that as your North star and letting all of these other things kind of fill in the gaps and treating them accordingly. So I loved this idea of a problem versus just an inconvenience and getting our minds right around those things and then dealing with them based on that information. So I thought that was really cool. All right, so we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with Jeremy. I know I certainly did. I'd love to chat with you more about it over in the Efficient Advisor community on Facebook. We've got 1,600 advisors in there. You're only allowed in if you're super cool and an advisor or part of the operations side of an advisory team, or we'll allow you in if you're marketing. But it's for advisor and advisor teams only. It's a great place to share resources, to ask for resources, to get feedback and ideas from other advisors who are in the trenches doing this all day, every day. I'd also love to connect over with you on LinkedIn. Those are pretty much the two places that I hang out online. I hope you guys have an amazing rest of your week and keep your eyes peeled for all of the info regarding group coaching coming out in the next week or so. Have an amazing rest of your week.